Faith Fit Radio and the Diocese of Orlando presents Burning Hearts with Father Patrick O'Dottery, a program that is seeking to lead young adults to Christ and to enkindle a deeper faith that is fully alive. Now, here is your host. Welcome to Burning Hearts, a Bible study for atheists, agnostics, for unbelievers, a Bible study for people of all faiths and people of no faith. Now our study today is, as I said, for atheists and agnostics and for unbelievers, mostly, mostly. Uh, why would anybody have a Bible study for atheists, agnostics and unbelievers? Well, two reasons. Um, you should know who we are as, un as believers and perhaps you will begin to talk back to us and let us know why you don't believe at all. I have a lovely little story that I'd like to share with you. Atheism and agnosticism can often be put down to plain, downright ignorance or laziness in thinking things out. Now, I'm not saying that you are an agnostic or an atheist for that reason, but I'm saying that sometimes people are just not prepared to make an effort to see or to struggle with the existence of God. Once a young boy living in a village in Eastern Europe wanted to become an atheist, but didn't know how to go about it. Someone told him about Jacob the atheist who lived in another village, about 200 miles away. And so the boy walks for days and days until he comes to Jacob's village. When he finds the house, he is greeted by Jacob's wife, who tells him that Jacob is in the synagogue and won't be back for a while. Eventually, Jacob comes home and the boy says to him, How come you've been to the synagogue and you're an atheist? Doesn't make any sense here. Yes, of course I am an atheist, Jacob replied. But you see, they needed ten people for a quorum at the synagogue and they needed me, so of course I went. And then I went to her circumcision. It was my great honor to hold the baby for my friend. So of course I went to the synagogue, and of course I did it. The boy then said, but I want to be an atheist. How do I go about it? So Jacob, the atheist, said to the young man, tell me now, do you know the Bible? No, I don't know the Bible. I want to be an atheist. Well, do you know the Torah, the, the law of Moses? Uh, do you know the story of Jesus? Of course not. I have no time for that stuff, the boy replied. So Jacob the atheist says finally, now listen, my dear boy, what you are is an ignoramus. To be an atheist, you really have to have some knowledge. So that's why we have this study uh, for atheists, unbelievers, and agnostics. To be a true atheist, you have to know the Bible. You have to know uh, the opposition, if you know what I mean. The problem of unbelief often has its roots in the false images we have of God. 
There is God, the stern ruler of the universe, way up there, remote and inaccessible. A God so remote that we cannot have a personal relationship with him. A God who perhaps sees all, knows everything, and cares less. A God who uh, perhaps even plays around with the lives of humans as I played with flies when I was a child and pulled the wings off them. That kind of stuff. Then there is the image of God which we carry over from our, from our childhood days. The vindictive God, the eternal policeman, ever vigilant, watching to catch us out. Once a little boy was caught with his hand in the biscuit tin, in the cookie tin, as we say here in the United States. His mother scolded him. God is very angry with you. You'll pay for this. You just wait and see. He was thereupon banished to his room to await the wrath of God. Shortly afterwards, there was a sudden thunderstorm and the mother ran to the boy's room to see if he was frightened. She found him looking out the window, munching one of the stolen cookies and muttering to himself, all this fuss over a few cookies. One mother went so far as to post a sign on the kitchen wall, God sees you. Then Granny came on a visit and eased the fears of the children. Every time you read these words, she said, try to remember that God loves you so much that he cannot take his eyes off you. Now, you see what the problem can be, that the God, for instance, you say, well, I don't believe in that God, and I could say to you, well, describe for me the God that you don't believe in. And then I might say to you, well, I don't believe in that God either. Let me share with you now, before we get into some of the biblical images of God, uh, something that happened to me as a child growing up. The reason I believe in God is because my parents did, and it's very basic and very simple. Um, the faith was handed on to me. One of the most striking images that stays with me to this day from my childhood, and I'm 51 years old, was in the kitchen of the house where we grew up, there was a big, big picture of Jesus. And in the middle of his chest was uh, his exposed heart and it on fire. The whole notion was that Jesus loved me so much and so intensely that his heart was on fire. Now again, growing up as a child, um, I used to see my mother talking to this Jesus. And she, she, while she was looking at the picture, you just knew that she wasn't talking to the picture, but she was talking to the person that was represented by the picture. Written at the bottom of the picture were the words, Sacred Heart of Jesus, I place my trust in thee. And, you know, my mother had a big family of 11 children, and I suppose there couldn't have been that much money coming in. Uh, my father was a detective officer, and I don't know how well or how badly they were paid. And so one of our most common prayers was, Sacred Heart of Jesus, I place my trust in thee. And she would say to me, even as a child, the man on the wall will look after us. And the man on the wall, of course, was this Jesus. Now, if my mother said he was going to look after us, then he was going to look after us. So you see where my faith came from. 
And then uh, one night uh, I woke up in the middle of the night and it was one of those summer uh, nights where it doesn't get fully dark. And lo and behold, uh, I saw my father standing in the corner of the room and with his hands joined and he too was saying his prayers. So my faith then came from hearing and seeing my parents as they spoke to Jesus, the Son of God, whom they had told me had died on the cross 2,000 years ago, but was risen from the dead and now with us all days till the very end of the world. So I'll have to say that I grew up knowing that the visible world around me uh, was inhabited by somebody invisible, Jesus, who was God's Son and was God, and that he loved me. Now something went wrong where, uh, if you like, I became, um, I suppose, a bit tormented in a way in my own faith. Um, a preacher came to town and he preached one of those famous hell, fire and brimstone sermons. Now I'm not blaming this preacher and I may have heard it all wrong, but I was about 15 at the time, heavily into zits and pimples and puberty. And here was this priest preaching about the last judgment. And at the last judgment, he said that God would sit upon his awesome throne and that all the nations of the earth would be assembled in front of him and among the nations of the earth would be me. And God would open the books of judgment. And of course, in my mind's eye, uh, me being vain, I saw God turning the pages um, to my name. And so, and then he reads out in front of my mother and father and in front of all the children, my brothers and sisters, in front of all the neighbors. What will the neighbors think? He will read out all my sins and everybody will know all those thoughts I had, especially the thoughts I had about the local girls and about sex. And I would be uh, terribly embarrassed. And then the preacher went on to describe in detail how God would weigh in a great scales the good and the bad that you had done throughout your life. And if the evil outweighed the good, which I was sure at that age that it did, then off I go to hell. And so now something terrible has happened. Uh, gone is the man in the wall. Gone is the Jesus who loved me. And now there is a vengeful God uh, who is watching my every action, recording it in a book, and is going to punish me for all eternity in the flames of hell because of the sins that I have committed. And there began a false, distorted image of God. And perhaps that's happened to you and a lot of people, that, that they grow up then and reject this God who is vindictive and judgmental and a punishing God. So we have a moral obligation now that we are older um, to take a look and see what God has to say about himself. And we'll do that now by looking at a passage in the Bible. The passage I'm going to look at uh, is in, again, the 15th chapter of Luke's Gospel. St. Luke was a physician, and it's verse 11 and the following. Now, while you're looking for it, let me tell you a little story that might help uh, a small bit. There was this grandfather who was babysitting his children. 
his grandchildren rather, uh, his grandson to be specific, and the grandson wore him out during the day. So thank God when night time came he could put the child in bed and just rest and, and, and relax for himself. So he puts the child in bed, kisses him goodnight, and goes out and plops into his armchair and says to himself, thank God, thank God, thank God. However, within seconds, this child cries out, Grandpa, Grandpa, and in exasperation, the grandfather says, what, what is it? And he says, I'm lonely. Well, the grandfather, in an effort to uh, uh, calm him down, said, well, you don't have to be lonely. God is with you. And the child says, I know God is with me, but I want somebody in here with skin on. Now, Jesus is God with skin on. When one of his apostles said to him one day, show us the Father, he said, how long do I have to be with you? Whoever sees me sees the Father. So we're going to take up now this story of Jesus and what he has to say about uh, what God is like. And we're in the 15th chapter of Luke's Gospel. Jesus also said, and remember now he's sitting with uh, outcasts and traitors and pimps and prostitutes and sinners of all kinds. Jesus also said, a man had two sons. The younger of the two sons says to his father, Father, let me have the share of the estate that would come to me. So the father divided up the property between them. A few days later, the younger son got together everything he had and left for a distant country where he squandered his money on a life of debauchery. Use your imagination. Went off to Greenwich Village in New York City and did shocking and terrible things. When he had spent it all, that country experienced a severe famine, and now he began to feel the pinch. So he hired himself out to one of the local inhabitants who put him on his farm to feed the pigs. Now, if you know anything about our Jewish brothers and sisters, the pig is an unclean animal, and it's non-kosher and disgusting. And here is this poor fellow. He's reached rock bottom. He hires himself out to one of the local inhabitants who puts him on his farm to feed the pigs. And he would willingly have filled his belly with the husks that the pigs were eating, but no one offered him anything. So finally he came to his senses and said, how many of my father's paid servants have more food than they want, and here am I dying of hunger. I will leave this place and go to my father and say, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I no longer deserve to be called your son. Treat me as one of your paid servants. So he left the place and went back to his father. While he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was moved with pity. He ran to the boy, clasped him in his arms and kissed him tenderly. Then his son said, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I no longer deserve to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, he said, bring out the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the calf we had been fattening and kill it. 
we are going to have a feast, a celebration, because this son of mine was dead and has come back to life. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now, the elder son was out in the fields, and on his way back, as he drew near the house, he heard the sound of music and dancing. Calling one of the servants, he asked what it was all about. Your brother has come, replied the servant, and your father has killed the calf we had been fattening because he got him back safe and sound. He was angry then and refused to go in, and his father came out to plead with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I have slaved for you and never once disobeyed your orders, yet you never offered me so much as a kid goat for me to celebrate with my friends. But this son of yours, when he comes back after swallowing up your property, he and his women, you killed the calf we had been fattening. The father said, My son, you are with me always, and all I have is yours. But it was only right we should celebrate and rejoice, because your brother here was dead and has come back to life. He was lost and is found. Now, in this extraordinary parable, one of the loveliest in all literature, Jesus uh, tells us the nature of God, that God is searching. He is searching for the lost sheep, the lost sinner. Now, how do we know? Well, if you look at the story, this young fella, uh, whom we just read about, wastes uh, all of his father's money, lives a terrible life with loose women. It could have been loose men, who knows? Maybe he's coming back HIV positive and ready to die. But what happens as he's approaching his father's house? His father sees him coming in the distance. Now remember the father in this story represents the father God, Abba, the Holy One, the father of Jesus. And he sees him coming in the distance and is moved with pity. He knows everything his son has done. He's moved with pity. He runs out to him. Jewish men didn't run in public. It was undignified. He runs out to him, throws his arms around him, and kisses him. I mean, this is, this is the son who has done everything wrong, but is now repenting. And the son begins his little speech. He says, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I no longer deserve to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And the father cuts him off. He turns to the servants who must have ran out after the old man and said, Quick, he said, Quick, bring out the best robe in the house and put it on him. Now, the best robe uh, would symbolize total forgiveness. And put a ring on his finger. A ring has no beginning or no end. It's, it's a symbol of authority and it's a symbol of eternal friendship. And put sandals on his feet. In the ancient world, only free men wore sandals. So here he is, welcomed back by his father. And with, with the garment of complete forgiveness, with the ring of eternal friendship, and with the sandals of freedom, he is restored to his father's house. And then he says, he says, kill the calf we had been fattening, for we must celebrate, because your, uh, my son was dead and has come back to life again. He was lost and is found. Now, that's what God's like, according to Jesus, that he looks on us with pity and compassion. He waits for each one of us to come back to him, and he welcomes us. 
Now, in this particular story, as you remember, there was an older brother, and unfortunately, um, his heart was a bit closed. And when he heard the sound of music and dancing and asked the servant what was going on, the servant says, your brother has come home and your father has killed the fatted calf because he has him back safe and sound and he won't go into the party. I mean, why would a religious person, a good person, not rejoice when a sinner comes back to the faith and back to the true way? So the father has to go out and he verbally attacks the father. He said, I enslaved for you all these years. In other words, he never enjoyed it. And you never gave me so much as the kid goat to celebrate with my friends. But this son of yours has come back having wasted your money on loose women. As I said, how does he know it could have been loose men or loose anything for that matter? But the father says to him, you didn't understand me either. All that I have is yours. But we had to celebrate because your brother was dead and has come back to life. He was lost and is found. So here we have Jesus of Nazareth telling us that God searches for us, God loves us and he knows us. But we're still left with, you know, that great uh, problem of evil. If God is so good and so kind and so loving, how come bad things happen to good people? How come there's so much evil? Now, I can't say I have an answer for this problem. Uh, I can only talk to you about it. When I look out from behind my eyes, there are two areas that mystify me. And remember, I'm a believer. One is the terrible apathy that has gripped us as believers in God. And the other is the age-old problem of so much suffering. For the life of me, I do not understand how people who consider the Nazi concentration, concentration camps to have been an abomination in the sight of God and man are silent in the face of the American Holocaust. 40 million innocent children killed through abortion through since 1972. Would I be terribly wrong if I suggested that so many believers in God, both clergy and laity, don't really care about what's happening? If you are still with me right now, I could, as if you're a believer, I could say to you, what have you done to stop this slaughter of innocent babies? Dear Abby published the, the following, which was written by a German Lutheran pastor who was arrested by the Gestapo and sent to a concentration camp in Dachau in 1938. In Germany, the Nazis first came for the communist, and I didn't speak up because I wasn't a communist. Then they came for the Jews, and I didn't speak up because I wasn't a Jew. Then they came for the trade unionists, and I didn't speak up because I wasn't a trade unionist. Then they came for the Catholics, and I didn't speak up because I was a Protestant. Then they came for me, and by that time there was no one left to speak up. So all of this raises the question, you know, of um, perhaps the, the, the worst uh, enemies of God could be the believers who in their apathy uh, 
do not confront the evil that exists all around us. And another problem, of course, is the problem of evil happening and why doesn't God stop it? Let me share with you a story again from World War II. The SS seemed very preoccupied, more disturbed than usual. They had intended to hang a young boy and a couple of others that day. To hang a young boy in front of thousands of spectators was no light matter. The head of the camp read the verdict. All eyes were on the child. He was lividly pale, almost calm, biting his lips. The gallows threw its shadow over him. The three victims mounted together onto the chairs. The three necks were placed at the same moment within the nooses. Long live liberty, cried the two adults. But the child was silent. Where is God? Where is he? Someone behind me asked. At a sign from the head of the camp, the three chairs tipped over. Total silence through the camp. On the horizon, the sun was setting. Bear your heads, yelled the head of the camp. His voice was raucous. We were weeping. Cover your heads. Then the march past began. The two adults were no longer alive. Their tongues hung swollen, blue-tinged. But the third rope was still moving. Being so light, the child was still alive. For more than half an hour, he stayed there, struggling between life and death, dying in slow agony under our eyes. And we had to look at him full in the face. He was still alive when I passed in front of him. His tongue was still red, his eyes not yet blazed. Behind me, I heard the same man asking, Where is God now? And I heard a voice within me answer him, Where is he? He is here. He is hanging here on this gallows. In every human being who is rejected unjustly, treated unjustly, abused, killed, aborted in any way, Christ is crucified again. Many people listening would be familiar with Dear Abby. Dear Abby published the following, which was written by a German Lutheran pastor who was arrested by the Gestapo and sent to a concentration camp in Dachau in 1938. In Germany, the Nazis first came for the communists, and I didn't speak up because I wasn't a communist. Then they came for the Jews, and I didn't speak up because I wasn't a Jew. Then they came for the trade unionists, and I didn't speak up because I wasn't a trade unionist. Then they came for the Catholics, and I didn't speak up because I was a Protestant. Then they came for me, and by that time there was no one left to speak up for me. Something like an eternity ago, human beings got all caught up in the illusion that being human is relatively unimportant, a relatively unimportant sort of proposition, here today, gone tomorrow, a veil of tears, that sort of foolishness. What's more tragic, of course, is that in the wake of this basic error, there quickly followed the idea that human beings are expendable, 
which easily degenerated into, into the position that some human beings are expendable, certain human beings are expendable, really bad guys are expendable, P children in the womb are expendable, guys with low IQ are expendable, anybody who disagrees with me is expendable. A long time ago, human beings got all caught up in the illusion that being human is relatively unimportant sort of proposition. Well, that's not true. It's wrong, all wrong. And it has always been wrong. From the creation of the heavens and the earth, it has been wrong. There is nothing more important than being human. Our lives have eternal significance. And no one, absolutely no one, is expendable. I can tell you with complete certainty, if you were the only person on the face of the planet at this moment, God so loves you that he would still have sent his only son to die in your place for your sins. Well, thank you for listening to Burning Hearts. My name is Patrick J. O'Doherty. Shalom. Faith Fit Radio and the Dice of Orlando presented Burning Hearts with Father Patrick O'Doherty. Thank you for listening. Check out the podcast at faithfitradio.org and tune in next time. May you be blessed with peace and joy.